Hello and welcome back to the Miscast, where we examine the latest news, spicy brews, and strategy in CDH. I am your host, Drake Sasser, and with me today is tournament organizer extraordinaire Mikey Hollihan. What is going on, buddy? Not much, doing well. Um, still pretty burnt out from Command Fest Philly that was this weekend. Lots of long nights, lots of busy days hanging out and seeing people, but it was a lot of fun. It was nice to get everyone especially from like the New York, D.C., uh, Philadelphia area all together so we can get a lot of games in. You get to play against a lot of decks that you haven't seen in a while. People are starting to try some new things, such as Levine has picked up Rocco, and he kicked ever all of our teeth in. I think his record for the weekend was 13-1 and or 12-1, and something like that. What? Uh, Rebel started working on Gale, so that was kind of cool seeing that list because it's something I've been really interested in. It's just, as you know, I'm lazy and just stick to my Grixis pile. So. <laughs> yeah. Cool it's just cool seeing some of these new commanders that I've always thought had like good potential, just people actually putting them to work and making things happen. Um, but yeah, really good weekend. And one thing that was really nice was uh, Mike Bonney, the director for Eminence. He was also at the event. And just the overwhelming positive feedback that we received for our event. There's a bunch of people who said, yeah, like I, I want to come to this event so I can start practicing and get ready for Punt City. And people were forming play groups and trying to exchange con- uh, connections and uh, contact information so they could do like pods to help practice for the tournament. And overall, it's just everyone's extremely excited for it. So it's just cool that all of our hard work is paid off and that the community is genuinely pumped for the event come August. Yeah, I mean, I obviously I've expressed on this podcast at this point multiple times my excitement for that event. And at this point, there's there's actually just no seats left, right? This thing is sold out like a month before it even is going to happen. Two months, maybe? Uh, two know. months, yeah, because it's the end of August. So we have Jeez. all of July and then essentially all of August because of the 27th through 28th. So I count that as two months. So yeah, we sold out in three weeks and people are just really excited you can see all the great discourse on twitter a lot of people are helping promote us we're starting a lot of conversations with different individuals and overall it's been a really great experience and like i said it's just really nice we put a lot of hard work into this we've all enjoyed the process on the eminence team and it's this great community is very receptive to everything we've been doing that's so awesome yeah i uh i have to say i'm a little jealous i've never actually been to a command fest i think i mentioned this to you before where I, that was on my bucket list kind of thing. I, I don't want to call it a bucket list, but it was like on my to-do list. It was on my agenda in 2020, even like when I was like doing 60 card grinding, like had no real aspirations of like doing any kind of the deep dive I've done on CDH that at this point. Um, but I wanted to go to Command, Se- Command Fest just to kind of see what it's about. I have a ton of casual decks I never really get to play that much. And like, you know, I could pick up some pods there. Obviously I was very interested in getting CDH pods. And I was actually at the time aware that playing with power went to a lot of the events. And so I wanted to like kind of get some pods in to get a feel for what the rest of the CDH meta looks like. Maybe get a little bit of camera match action in so I can go back and watch. Like I was just kind of interested in participating in all that kind of stuff in 2020. Of course, now, uh, ironically kind of things happened in a, an opposite order where I ended up, you know, getting really into CDH and, involved with playing with power and all that stuff prior to even going to my first command fest but i finally have the first one on the schedule i'm going to be at uh command fest indianapolis um in what not next week but the week after um actually it might just be next weekend like there's this weekend and then it's, it's next weekend i think is what it is. yeah i believe it's july 9th or 10th, yeah, yeah whatever eight, that nine, saturday seven. is mm-hmm. yeah so i'm super stoked that one's like drivable it should be like an easy trip um indy is uh, a city beloved to me as i won an scg open there and i have fond memories of being in that city a place called ale emporium can't wait to check out so i'm really really excited i'm really excited to play some some commander and meet up with some of the playing with power guys you know i haven't actually seen these people in person in actual years right so we're on discord calls and stuff and 
content all the time together but you know getting to actually meet up hang out like i've been really jealous it's extreme fomo of all the pictures and the food pics and all the stuff you've been posting about uh command fest philly and stuff so i'm really really stoked yeah command fest philly like i said was great got to see a bunch of people um it was also really good to see my friend josh uh, elder drunken highlander he came down for the event and always love seeing that beautiful hunk of man <laughs> uh, yeah, i think i spent more time I think I spent more time eating this weekend than I did actually playing Magic, but that's also just a win in my book. Cause I, I've talked to you about this before. It's like, why we already play Magic online all the time. Like, when we get together, like, can we do things that aren't Magic related? So it's nice that I'm starting to get ingrained that within the groups that like to travel and things where it's not just go to the event, play Magic all day, then go back to someone's apartment or Airbnb and then just play more hours of Magic. Cause it's, it's just a lot. Like, you know, I like these people. I want to spend time with them and actually talk with them. Sure. Yeah. No, I'm in, I'm in the same boat. No, I am. I am a hopeless addict. I legitimately could actually just play Magic Sun up to sundown like every day for a lot of days straight. It's it's kind of embarrassing. I kind of wonder if there's like, is that like actually healthy? Like, there's no way that's healthy for me. But uh, you know, obviously the tournaments they come and go. Whatever events come and go, I can't play Magic all day every day, and uh, the logistics of it don't even work out even if I wanted it to. So maybe that's maybe that stopgap is actually good for me. But no, I, I think you're doing it right. I think if you spend more time chilling and eating food than you do playing magic i think that that is a huge win uh i, I always tell mm -hmm. people that magic is there just to get people to actually show up because it's hard it's hard to get people to commit to something because it's the the i don't know for some reason they're just not really willing to nail down a date like it's hard to be like hey let's go hang out in whatever city like imagine a universe where like you me and a bunch of the people you would hang out with at any given command fest are like okay let's just go to philadelphia for no reason or whatever let's just hang out like yeah, it's really hard to actually work in yeah yeah, no, I, I agree. It's something I've been struggling with, but it's nice. Like I said, now I've been doing this so often and traveling around, seeing so many people that when we get together, it's like we're able to just like hang out. It's like, oh, yeah, we do like each other's company. <laughs> we're friends. Yeah. yeah, right. It's crazy. There's more than cardboard. But yeah, overall, yeah. great weekend. It's a nice Very thrilled and excited for future events. Yeah, me too. Me too. And it's really cool to hear those, uh, those kinds of testaments to people kind of using these events as like testing grounds for tournaments i think that's really exciting and intriguing to me and definitely ties in really well to what we're going to be talking about today but um in general like i think that the more collaboration that happens in the cdh sphere you know the better that we as a community are going to get at the format itself like we're going to share more information we're going to learn more we're going to get better and i think you know command fest are great opportunities to do some of that really critical networking and you know, hearing that that stuff's like happening and people are forming these testing pods and stuff. It's honestly really cool. Reminds me of like what I heard of old, like old school pro tours before there was like MTGO and net decking or whatever nonsense, like where people would just like get a house and like test for weeks and just try to figure it out in their own little like testing group prior to the pro tour. It kind of feels like that where we're like going into Punt City. It's like everyone's testing in their own little groups. I know I certainly am. And uh, just trying to break it in their own in their own space showing up and seeing how they do yeah exactly um it definitely seems like now as like eminence has popped up monarch has their event that's coming up in november and just in general like monarch and both both monarch and eminence have made it clear like we're doing more events like this isn't like a one and done type of deal i think people are starting to get more into that competitive mindset and i think you're really seeing this on twitter too with like a lot of the discourse that's happening where people are starting to get the insight of more legacy players like as you know in our play group i've looped in Brian Cook at this point and a few other legacy players and it's really just showing I think on how people are really trying to push the format to its limits and I think that's a good segue into what we're going to be talking about today. I very much have to agree with you. 
before we dive in too, too far, is there anything you're working on? I always like to touch base with you, see what kind of decks you're working on. I know you were talking about Gale a little bit, and the, the background mechanic and all that stuff. Yet to play a pod with any of those stuff. Um, yeah, you working on any, any new decks? I'm doing some testing with you, but I don't know if you've actually gotten a chance to play like your uh, new, whatever, the, the World Gorger Dragon, but no red deck. Yeah, the the San San Razakats, as I call it. It's a yeah, with, yeah, with Abdel. Um, tried it out, and it did well. Like it was definitely good. I just remembered after playing it for like five games that I just don't enjoy Reanimator, and that's completely <laughs> fine. Like <laughs> I just fair. didn't like that those those play patterns. Like I like it with Anala, but that's where that's a little bit different because the deck is just so much more focused. Like it's just all about Spellseeker. Mm-hmm. But I just found when I have the Reanimator stuff going on, I never really tutored for that. I was always always going for like Oracle Conceptor reversal and the reanimator stuff just like never really happened or like swift reconfig and devoted druid i realized just how powerful that combo was i always knew it was good but actually playing it i was like wow this is just insane and so easy to tutor for but i definitely enjoyed the deck thought it was good i passed it off to scoots he's been too uh tweaking around with it and playing some stuff he ultimately decided that he prefers Razakats, but we we both agree like the deck functions it's good it's just not our style which you know it's fine and you know it only took me five games to realize that so it's not like i was put a bunch of time into it but I've been revisiting Chrome Armix a lot recently, because uh, with playing more with Brian and getting more of his insights, like it's really changed a lot of my perspectives on some deck building things. I've started to swap some cards around and playing like Strike It Rich and things that like along those lines, like cards that I thought thought were just like obsolete. And he's his like theory crafting and everything has really convinced me. So I'm trying the deck out, made it a little bit more leaner. I'm off the Citadel cute stuff and just trying to just do General Grix's good stuff. Went down a couple more lands. I'm on 25 now, and oh. the deck definitely feels like it's doing a lot better. <laughs> yeah, I know Drake doesn't like that, but it, it's been fun. So it's been cool. It's just really like the deck was getting a little bit stale for me, and now it's like I have a bunch of stuff that I'm testing out, and I really like it. It feels a lot smoother, a lot cleaner, and it's it's still doing very well. Um, I still lose to Brian a lot now, but you know, one day, and I'm losing to you all the time now too, which I don't like. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That's true. I think in the asymmetry, uh, you struggle a little bit more. And we had a little bit of conversation about that is, you know, I've been working on Blue Farm a ton. And uh, I I think in that asymmetry, Blue Farm can kind of go over the top of uh, Chrome Armix. You know, you have a little bit more card advantage. You know, you have a little bit more powerful cards, having access to some of the really powerful white cards going on that uh, do a lot, you know, the silence effects and stuff to punch through interaction. You don't have access to that in just base Grixis. But we, we mentioned it before, we also probably are um, under-representing some of the creature-based stacks pieces in our pods that we've been playing, where I think Armix uh, wins a lot of points over the strictly card-advantage-oriented things like uh, Tinder and Krom. So, you know, this may just be kind of the nature of things. I don't know if that makes your deck actually, you know, tangibly worse, because, you know, you do have spots where... You know, Armix does serve a meaningful purpose. It does come at a cost, right? Where like you have to, you lose a color and you lose additional card advantage to where you maybe can't play, can't hang with some of the other grindier decks, having access to only a Krom. But by the same token, your mana base is a little bit better and, you know, you, you can punch through some of these creature decks like really well, just having removal of the command zone. So that that is kind of one of those instances where I'll hear a case for, you know, there's context matters a lot because the decks are very, very similar, right? Like Krom Armix and like a blue farm shell are going to share yeah, they're, like, a ton. They're like 90 cards or over 90 cards similar. Right, exactly. Like the land. Like the lands is a little bit different, honestly, because you have to have your white lands. But other than that, it's like the white cards you're really playing are Silence, Savine's Wreck, each tutor meets. Like there's not a whole lot of white cards that you're playing. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's extremely true. And so in general, I, I kind of classify them as more or less the same deck. It's just kind of like, 
because it's the same overall strategy in my opinion but you are you do have like a couple different uh considerations you take into account so i'm excited to hear striker rich sounds actually really sick with armix you know get, you get to generate more artifacts in play pump up the artifact count plus it's like a fine thing to pitch because it has like the flashback thing going on so like you know you can get a little bit of value on the back end i don't know it's like that's a cute card that i think makes a lot of sense in uh Krom armix and uh you know, I, I know you test a lot of other stuff too. And I mean, obviously I've been in the same boat testing a, a ton of stuff. My blue farm deck has kind of been overhauled more or less from the starting point since we started testing, which has been really awesome. And I think that like segues this pretty well because, you know, I'm preparing to play in Punt City. That's something that I've been vocal about on Twitter. Um, I, I start basically every one of these uh, conversations off with some kind of Twitter post usually because that's usually what sparks like our conversations around, you know, whatever's going on in the CDH community. It's very, very Twitter oriented. It's Twitter, Discord, Reddit oriented. And for me, Twitter has some of the uh, best good faith interactions that you can have. And so there was like a little bit of, I don't know, I don't even want to call it animosity, but there was a little bit of maybe a a miscommunication or something uh, where it seemed like some individuals were making some posts about, uh, you know, SCG players entering the CDH scene and their uh, their perception of these people that have an SCG background and their you know opinions and their behavior towards the CDH community. Me being someone obviously that comes from a very very deep SCG background, it's hard not to hard not to think that one's about you. So I wrote this super long Twitter thread has twenty two tweets. And I'm going to read off the uh, the first couple because that is the crux of what we're going to be talking about today. Um, and so I, I posted in the very first post, said, after reflecting on some of the interactions I've had with various individuals in the CEDH spaces over the last week or so, I've come to the conclusion a subset of people don't want me here. This doesn't dissuade me, but the space I take up is uncomfortable to some. My interactions and mannerisms with respect to game, gameplay, and deck building theory runs counter to some accepted norms and desired realities. And then to be more specific, my goal is to break it. I want to solve the format. I want to find the best deck and I want to optimize it. And the reason this can be problematic is um, there's a perception around CDH that it is extremely wide open, which I do think is true relative to any other competitive format that exists. I think CDH is extremely wide open, but people have a perception that, you know, there's, you know, literally hundreds of decks. And I don't think that's in the zip code of the actual reality. And I think this causes some friction when it comes to people that put a lot of stock in their deck as a representation of their self-worth, their effort, their time, their energy, you know, their identity. Like you, you see people all the time that are like, whatever, this is, I identify with this deck. I'm a Karkashima player, like, or I'm, you know, whatever, like, not to call Charles out. Charles is great, but he's like, I'm the mono white guy. So like people attach a lot of their personality and identity to decks i mean look at you you're the grixis guy right like you're of anala and uh krom armix like grixis mean yeah. mean girl let's go grixis mean girl club <laughs> i don't even know if i'm a part of that because like whatever i mean grixis shell is kind of messed up but i like i just i just like playing like four colors and five colors uh, so you're, you're just you're just a legacy player that got confused and played cdh yeah i, I got lost <laughs> i need to, I need one of those like shirts it's like if if lost return to mikey hollahan or whatever <laughs> yeah you got lost and then i herded you into my stable <laughs> <laughs> so i don't know i think i think basically when i talk about solving this format and i talk about what that looks like what it looks like to 
kind of begin to separate the cream of the crop from the rest of the pack when it comes to deck lists, which is what you have to do when it comes to tournaments. And I do have a process for this that I'm going to dive into a little bit. But just as a very general talking point here, um, solving a format, for the sake of you know my conversation with you here and the sake of this podcast, is going to directly translate to finding the best deck in the format. There's more going on, right? A solved quote-unquote format, in my opinion, does have a couple more elements. Usually it involves finding, like, you know, the level one, level two, and level three deck. Like, if you have a solved format, in my opinion, all three of those slots are locked in. The level one deck is just the best deck. You know, beats everything in general, like, most of the time. But, you know, whatever. It's just the best deck. Level two is the deck that beats the best deck, but struggles against other decks that people will show up with. And then level three is the deck that beats everything generically but the best deck or whatever. Um... That's kind of, that's really, really, really uh, abbreviated, but there's there's a piece of content out there. You can find what that all means if you just do a little bit of searching and find some 60-card articles. There's an article on that kind of stuff, uh, breaking that all down. But basically, for me, a solve format does involve, like, all of those being locked in. Like, it's solved. There's really not a lot more to learn. But when it comes to casual conversations about solving a format, for me, I only care about the best deck because that's what I'm going to show up with. I'm going to show up with whatever gives me the best chance to win. And I said that in my thread. I mean it. I, I mean saying it here too. For me, a solved format or like my, what I'm solving for is I'm looking for the best deck in the format. I feel like I take a similar approach and like while well, I do Grits' Piles over Blue Farm, it's kind of like what we were talking about. Like they're basically the same thing. It's just, I like to have like different utility. Like I like to know how I can keep threatening wins or Armix so I can like deal with pesky creature-based combo decks and that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, it's a race to whatever the, the best deck is or what we think the best like shell or main best cards are for sure. Yeah, and I think our conversation leading up to this is a good example of a situation where talking about quote unquote the meta game and talking about like contextual pods like does actually matter because once again we're talking about the same base core of good cards it's no secret at this point that i think blue farm is one of the best decks in the format it's what i've been working on for a long time it's on my public mocks field what i'm working on where i'm at with it and it's gone through a lot of changes but the commanders i think are some of the best the the card base core i think is some of the best and you know i don't want to be one of those people that's like i think you know only grixis decks are playable i don't actually think that but I think that in general, you need to have a really good reason to not be playing the core Grixis cards that make up the CDH format. Blue and black always been the best in the format with, you know, Breach and Dockside. It's hard not to include red in the mix now. So it, it, there's it's there's a reason a lot of people are coming to the same conclusion that the Grixis cards are the messed up ones. You can add more colors. You can, you know, whatever, configure your commanders and all that stuff. But in general, like the best pool of cards comes from the Grixis colors and when you're talking about Chrom Armix, they bring all that to the table, and Blue Farm brings white cards to the table too. But we we discuss some like realistic trade offs that are all, all in all relatively minor when it comes to actual gameplay. They can translate big in a tournament setting, but we're not talking about deck identity, you know, upheavals. We're just talking about yeah, here's like a little bit of changes here and there that shore up some matchups or shore up some pods, and I think that's really really cool to have that kind of stuff, and that's the kind of stuff I'm really interested in doing. But a lot of times, uh, I think there's a lot of misinformation that it's like, you know, people are like, whatever, they try to use some really incomplete statistics to be like, you know, Grixis decks aren't even the best, you know, whatever. This deck just won the last tournament and it doesn't even play any of those colors or something. And it's like, yeah, but that's not the entire picture. And one, you know, instance of a tournament in which 
you know, there is a lot of variance and there was a lot of other kind of conditions going on in the specific tournament. Like it, that's just not a good indicator. We need to talk about, you know, what's winning the majority of pods, what decks across the board had the best win rates, you know, that was that deck an outlier. There's a lot more going on for parsing data that I'd prefer to actually kind of eschew it in general. Cause I think a lot of time you can spend way too much time spinning your wheels and drawing bad conclusions from data. We talked about this in our tournament, uh, episode whatever it was like five six episodes ago um you just waste a lot of time drawing back conclusions from data so i think mostly it's kind of a waste of time to talk strict data unless you have a huge pool of it like you have an mtgo leagues and stuff like that where it's just thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of matches yeah because so many of the torrents are now like more or less outliers because you know on arc was the first in paper large-scale cdh event on in, the, in america since ddm which happened before the pandemic like I know there's been a lot of webcam tournaments and such, but even those were kind of like few and far in between. Like maybe like last year there was 10 webcam tournaments and some of them only had, you know, 40 to 50 people. Like that's just not enough data to really come up with any meaningful conclusion. And every time this happens, the deck that wins, like for instance, when Dama Shakashima won, everyone's like, this deck is insane. It's so good. Everyone should be playing. And then I didn't see anyone play it the, uh, two weeks after the tournament ended because people were like, oh, this is kind of gimmicky. Like, Yeah, we can need, adjust to you, this. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like there's not really any huge meta that's formed yet just because there hasn't been an abundance of in-person tournaments. And I think we're really going to see that change in 2023, um, like especially with Punt City happening so close to Monarch's November, October Fest, whatever it's called. The name's very long. Uh, I think you'll definitely see like more meaningful conclusions being drawn from that, especially because Marchesa wasn't that long ago. And I think now that we're going to get this repetition of large-scale 100-plus in-paper tournaments and with higher stakes, like our tournament has $4,000 in prize pool, people are really going to start to push the bounds, and I think an actual meta will start to form instead of all these isolated play groups that play online in different servers. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, I'm really excited to see these tournaments ramp up. I really want to see what happens in these tournaments, especially over the next year or two, maybe even three, and then go back and check our notes from things like the Timna Dilemma, where we made these like guesstimates about what would happen if cdh tournaments ramped up in a dramatic way because it sounds like they kind of are and just see yeah, if we're right or not you know yeah they're definitely going to be ramping up and i'm sure we, we weren't right about everything but i'm sure there's a few things that we did hit on the money so it'll definitely be really cool to revisit that once we actually have more data especially at the end of 2023 because i think that that year alone is probably going to have maybe like six at least six like in-person large-scale paper events in the u.s um yeah this would be really cool to see comparing and seeing what's going on yeah, that's super awesome. I'm, I'm really excited to see that. And I know, you know, you're involved with Eminence. You can't share too many details, but I'm very excited for what could be coming on the horizon and the potential for uh, that group of just extremely talented individuals. But furthermore, I think as people prepare for these tournaments, right? I, I mentioned my goal in CDH primarily is to try to solve the format. I want to find the best deck. That way, you know, obviously I want to give my myself the best chance of winning City. I want to show up and I want to win this now ginormous pile of money that is on the line. And to do so, I need to find the best deck. So in general, I think when it comes to preparing for a tournament, preparing for a tournament and trying to solve the format should be the same goal, right? Like you're trying to accomplish the same thing. You're trying to figure out what you should be playing this tournament. And if the best deck isn't obvious, you should be trying to break it. So, but when it comes to preparing for a tournament, there's a lot of people that give you a wide range of advice. Because that's advice that they followed for whatever reason. Either they came up with it themselves or it was telephoned down to them. But I hear a lot people say things like, play what you know. Which is 
maybe not bad advice per se, but it is is incomplete. In my opinion, you should favor what you know. Start testing with things that you understand in and out. Like you said, you don't like reanimation strategies. Okay, well, if you're preparing for a tournament, I wouldn't start with that. I would start with what you know. Try to see, you know, objectively, how good is the decks that you like to play and that you're good at. Can you tune a list to throw down and maybe even be the best deck with, you know, the rest of what you consider to be the good decks and the prominent decks, at least, that you're going to face in the tournament. And if that doesn't work, you should be prepared to move on because you can waste a ton of time. And honestly, you could waste your entire tournament if you just quickly lock in the deck and then stress out about 10 slots that ultimately don't matter because, you know, it turns out the deck's like really underpowered or whatever. Like you can't tunnel vision on that. You need to be like, okay, I would like to play this. This seems like something I would enjoy. And if it's not good, you need to be prepared to move on to something else. And you never know. Sometimes you can be surprised at what, you know, you might enjoy uh, playing around with a little bit more. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. This is some advice I gave a lot of people to Punt City. Um, one thing I thought was kind of funny, people were like, oh, like, are you allowed to, like, give, like, deck building advice before the tournament? I was like, yes, I can I can help with that. Like, I can't share information about what decks are submitted, but I can give, like, general deck building advice. So I thought that was kind of funny that people were worried about approaching me over that. <laughs> but it, the other big thing was people were like, what deck do you think I should play? And I was like, one, I don't really know. They're like, oh, like, I think I'm going to lock in whatever list that they were playing. Like one person was on Paco Hall. And was like, I'm, I think I'm going to lock this in. I need to get practice starting now. Uh, this is something that I've talked to you a lot about. I was like, you don't need to over test and over practice a list. And like, I don't think your chances of going up or chances of winning a tournament necessarily go up because you've been playing the same list for three months. Because as you said, maybe the list just isn't great for one reason or another, or it's not tuned to eat the Thrasios Timna piles, the Timna Krom piles that you're going to see everywhere. And on your note, where, like, I don't know how we were talking about, like, we like playing what we think is the best deck. That's kind of what led me to playing Armix Chrome. Because you get the Grixis stuff, you have Oracle Console, you have Breach Lines, you have, like, all those really efficient combos that make Blue Farm the deck that it is. Then I have Armix, which gives me an answer to Hate Bears, to Stacks, to these creature combo decks, like, you know, Malcolm, uh, Malcolm Anna, the Team of Pirates list that runs with Glenhorn. It was something that really shined in Vegas because I was able to just keep killing people's Malcolms because that deck was popular at the time. So that's something that I put into a lot of thought, even though I don't really have interest in competing in tournaments personally. I made my Armist Chrome list to where I can show up into any blind meta, and I think it'll do well, because I can go fast, I can hang with the big boys and drop a Nas turn two, turn three, but then I'm also good in these longer games where the board just gets hate out by hate bears, and then I'm able to kill them with Armix, and that's why the deck is literally called Hate Bear Drive-By. Right, exactly. And I think that's a really, really good point, because you didn't build Chrom Armix because you just like Armix or whatever. You weren't like, oh, I like robots, so I'm going to build Chrom Armix. You built Chrom Armix to attack a specific problem. This is this is key. This is huge. You identified that there's an issue. Okay, there's not enough removal spells. Well, I don't want to pack my deck full of Swords of Plowshares and Doomblades and Terminates. Like, those aren't good, objectively good cards. And Sweepers are really expensive and make Nas hurt more and all this stuff. So, how do you know? how do I subsidize that? How do I get you know, removal spells and still have a good functional deck. And that's kind of where Chrom Armix fills a niche. And, you know, you built Chrom Armix, you started farming people and it solved the exact problem you thought it would. And, you know, the metagame, I think, has changed a little bit uh, in nature since then. You know, there's been developments, there's been new cards and all this kind of stuff. But for the most part, your deck's held up. And at one point in time, I was fairly convinced it was in the top three decks in the format. And I, I still kind of believe that. Like, right now, if you put a gun to my head and said, you can't play Blue Farm, at Punt City, what are you playing? I'm just registering whatever your exact 75 is right now. So I think, you know, that is honestly underrated. This is something I, I talked to you about 
kind of in privately before is like the fact no one talks about your deck. The fact, I mean, people treat Armix like I treated Armix. The first time I showed up and read Armix, I was like, this card looks horrible. And then you watch the games play out. And you're like, oh, I get the joke. This card's really good. And now, now it's like, you know, after seeing that and seeing how this game's played out, I'm like, holy cow, like this deck just might be the best deck in the format. This, this You might've just broken. And that might've been possible at the time. I think people now know a little bit more about the deck and know how to play against it. And, you know, you can kind of hold your creatures because you can overwhelm the Armix and all this stuff. People have kind of figured out how to play against it. But at the time, I mean, you were just taking names. Yeah, for sure. Definitely, people have learned uh, ways to pivot, at least especially like in our play group, like because a lot of people we play with like to play Malcolm and Timna decks, and they started to catch on, well, if we all drop our creatures, you can't kill all of them. And it kind of became this game of chicken, it kind of goes back to the Timna dilemma. The issue was when only one person would cast their creature at a time, but for instance, I'm in a pod would say, like, you, Hire, and Zane. You dropped a turn one Timna, Zane dropped a turn one Malcolm on Team or Pirates, and then Hire's on Kinnon and drops a Kinnon. Now it's, like, really hard for me because, yes, I have removal on a stick, but I only can kill one thing a turn. So it's really, like, now I have to figure out what's more threatening. Drake drawing cards? Does Zane have the glint in hand? Is Hire just about to drop a Void Winner off the next Kennen activation? So it's a lot more questions than before. Like, it just kind of overwhelmed people because they were just like, I feel like I can't cast anything. And then they weren't casting their commanders at all. And now people realize you can kind of overwhelm the board. And then I have to get a lot more strategic and Armix kind of loses its strength when there's five good targets and I need to figure out the right one. And then I've won games because I hit the right one. I've also lost games because I've hit the wrong one at the wrong time. So I definitely think it's still a powerful strategy, but you're right. Like people have gotten a little bit more used to playing against it, but I still think it's good in um, a blind meta where you're not sure what you're going to be playing against. I very much agree with you on that. And like I said, it's in my contention for for best decks possible, uh, in, or at least right now, one of the best possible, sorry, possible best decks in the format right now. So, but yeah, so I, I think what you did there is a great example of a great opportunity to fill a niche and solve a problem in a metagame and i think honestly the work you did there is really commendable and like that is and when you're talking about 60 card formats that's where you win money like what you did with chrome armix is the kind of things that win big in 60 card formats where you can identify a hole in the metagame build a deck that is still extremely functional in its own right and solves the problem you win a ton of money so you know that it's possible but in general if there is an identified best deck you should be playing that deck if possible it's just like that's just true this is something that countless times magic players mess up i did too i was in the same exact boat i wanted to show up and i wanted to play the cards i wanted to play with or like i wanted to play the deck that like maybe wasn't the top deck but it looks like on paper it beats the top deck because it has the removal spells and all this stuff and if things line up you just slaughter them and that's great i want to do that i want to feel smart and it's just it's just not what wins matches you can you can still win tournaments with it it's possible like you can still win a tournament but your win rate across a series of tournaments which is what we're talking about when it comes to tournament grinding right like you're playing a ton of tournaments when it comes to that your win rate's going to be lower and you know you're going to take a direct financial hit for it literally because you're going to win less money you're going to be more frustrated because you're winning less matches you're going to start to doubt yourself and all this kind of stuff just because you're too stubborn to play the best deck it took me years to learn this years but as soon as i did you know like I, it was it was a dramatic difference playing the best deck it, it's kind of like a cheat code it's like oh you can just they just let you play with this busted stuff and then people intentionally don't register the busted stuff oh okay this is great <laughs> but yeah for sure <laughs> yeah, that only that only works though if there is you know if there's a best deck you know so, sometimes you don't know 
what the best deck is, which I think is the case for CDH. Sometimes you just won't like it for whatever that reason is. Like you were talking about how, you know, maybe if it turns out Tim Thrasios Borg Order Dragon is the best deck ever, I, I doubt it is. But if it just turns out to be, you're talking about how you don't like the playstyle too much, I can't imagine you're going to show up with it because you're just not going to, you're not going to be in tune with it. You're not going to be focused on maximizing lines. You're just trying to get it over with. Hmm. And your play will suffer if that's your mentality. And then sometimes you don't have time to test or learn, which is, you know, you heard people talking about, oh, I need to lock in my Poggle Halted now. Uh, two months is more than enough time. You, like, what I'm talking about, if you don't have time to test and learn a deck, I'm talking about if you have, like, less than, like, two or three days. I, I think you can, most Magic players that know how to play the game of Magic and are competent enough to know about tournaments and show up to tournaments probably can learn whatever deck they want in about two or three days. There's just, yeah, people over overrate the complexity of decks, I think. Yeah, and going to that point, um, going back to our episode, we talked about the playing with Power Torn that happened a few months ago. Gustav won that tournament with a deck he literally put together two days before the event. He's like, I think I know this meta is going to be stacks. There's going to be a lot of rule of law, so I'm going to build a deck that beats that. And then he won the event. Like he didn't have a lot of practice on that list. He was he, he I haven't seen him play Divining Witch in any other list before that deck or after that deck. So he he made a good meta call, and it, you know he's a solid player. And it's like, yeah, this isn't complicated, and won the event and. Caught a lot of people off guard with the strategy he was going for. Yeah, it's the exact same thing as the Chrome Armix thing, right? Right. He identified mm -hmm. a you know a, a hole in the metagame he could exploit and won big. Awesome. Just stuff you love to see. I mean, we talked about it at length in that episode, and it's a great case study for exactly what we're talking about here. You can do it, but you have to that takes that's a lot harder to do. It's a lot harder to do, and more often than not, it doesn't work. It's really cool when it does because, you know, obviously you feel really smart. You feel really rewarded for putting in a lot of effort and taking big risks. So, like, it sticks out to people when that kind of thing happens. But in general, more often than not, tournaments are – tournament top eights are filled with whatever the best deck is. So, especially over time, there's just going to be more top eights with whatever the actual best deck is than there is with anything else. Just, like, on pure quantity across a lot of tournaments and events. So, mm -hmm. that that – as a result – when there is a best deck, like the best possible thing, the best possible case for someone like me that's just like a tournament grinder is when there is a clear best deck and it's what I want to be playing, right? Like I was absolutely crushing during the SG tour where Is It Phoenix was the best deck. I love playing my Dirtily Is It cards. Is It Phoenix is right up my alley. I even got to play with one of my favorite cards ever, Pyromancer Ascension. And I just, that deck, I knew it inside out, upside down. I mean, you could even find content where I did a lot of streams with Is It Phoenix back in the day. Like, I, you know, had a nice run on the SCG tour with Is It Phoenix. And, you know, that's, that is the best feeling when you just, the best deck is something that you click with and you just learned it inside and out and you're just zooming. You're just chugging through tournaments like butter. But realistically, that's, you know, not generally the case. That's very, very rare that that happens. But still, even if it's not your preferred play style, if there is a clear best deck, it's probably still correct to play. Like, even if you're worried people are going to prepare for it, that almost never... If someone tells you that they beat the best deck, they're almost always wrong. People have been saying for actual decades that their deck beats Delver, and it just doesn't. Delver's still the best deck in the format. So, like, it's just... You have to kind of see these patterns to really have it cement in your head. When it looks like a matchup's bad on paper, and it looks like, you know, everyone's saying their deck beats your deck, but that deck's still considered the best deck, you know, one of these sides is just not true. Like, you know, either it's not the best deck or they're wrong about having a good matchup. So, I mean, that was true for the Hogak. Like, I, that's a great example of a time where I played Hogak because it was the best deck 
I, I had a fine win rate, but it was not a deck I jived with at all. This is just not what I want to be doing. This is not my play style. And I had like a modest win rate. Like I still did fine. It was better than if I played something trying to beat Hogak for sure. But, you know, I wasn't as in tune. I wasn't willing to put in the reps because it wasn't super fun. And like, I didn't want to sit and just test it all day because I, I didn't really, like, I just wanted to get it over with, right? Like that mentality actually had a negative impact on my play. And if I was a perfect magic player, I could just push that away and not have that ever be a problem. But that just is not how that works. So uh, the, I, there's times where I stepped out of my comfort zone, decks like humans in modern, where I had a good win rate and actually put up some results, but that was very far outside my my range previously of just like dirtily cantrip cards and uh, blue-white miracles cards. So I, I think expanding your range isn't as hard as people make it out to be. It's more important than people make it out to be. And as a result, you should just be playing the best deck. Do not put yourself further behind with a lesser deck choice on top of like needing to get lucky. Like if your argument is that like, okay, well, you know, I don't know, Mikey Hollihan's <laughs> a better Krom Armix player than I am. So I'm not going to show up with Krom Armix because I would never be able to beat him. That's just a bad argument because if Krom Armix is the best deck, you should just be able to beat everybody else and hope to get lucky against Mikey Hollihan, right? Like the, the game of magic is great because you can get lucky in those spots and it's still just correct. Just show up with the best deck if you're trying to win a tournament. 90, I'll say 95% of the time, it's correct to play the best deck in a tournament. So, there are times, as we've mentioned, after saying all this, there are times where a meta is solved or believed to be solved, and you can exploit that. We talked about that with Gustav's um, Hermitry deck that has things like Divining Witch and stuff. We talked about it with Krom Armix. I mean, that's what happened with me with my Stormwind in Indy. When Urza Outcome was printed as the best deck, I realized way too late in the testing process that Amulet Titan was the deck I should have been playing. Uh, so I couldn't go in with no reps because I didn't I didn't even have a day to test it. So I took a risk registering Storm as a level three deck trying to dodge the bad matchups. But I knew I had good matchups because from actually playing the matches against the Urza and Amulet decks, my top eight matches were literally Urza into Amulet Amulet, uh, playing it both in the semifinals and finals and got paid off big. More often than not, that's not how these things play out. Like I was pretty worried about that weekend. I was pretty sure that my testing process was more or less a failure. And all it took was a few bad matchups and I was out of the tournament. But we dodged. We got lucky. You got to get lucky to win a tournament. Sure did. So there are times when you can exploit holes in a metagame. So how do you know when to do which? Most of the time, just play the best deck. Like, I think a lot of times people spend way too much time and energy trying to look and feel really smart in the community and be like, I, I solved it. I broke it. I broke the metagame wide open. But that's just... That's just not how it plays out. Like it for you, for instance, like for Krom Armix, it it's not something you, I think, were actively searching for. It was kind of just a casual observation that came as a byproduct of playing a bunch of matches. Is that correct? I wasn't trying to like break anything wide open. It was just I noticed a lot of people were playing Winota, for instance. It was really, really popular at the time. I saw Malcolm decks being really, really popular. And even though I had, you know, my psych rifts and all this other stuff, like a lot of spot removal. It's just like sometimes I don't find it in time or if there's something that prevents me from searching, I can't suit her to the Psychrift and it's like, here's my answer. I have it in the command zone. As long as Adranith isn't dropped early, I'm good. Exactly. I, I think that's an important thing to highlight is like, it wasn't something that you came in looking, you didn't start by looking at the metagame and saying, how can I break this wide open? You started by playing a bunch of games, realizing that things that were there as countermeasures weren't good enough and being like, okay, this is a problem. 
I need to solve this problem. And it's, it's like that flipping of instead of looking for a problem to solve, you instead find the problem and then solve it. That I think is a big thing. A lot of players screw up. A lot of times players will look at different decks and be like, okay, well, if I play Praetor's Grasp in my deck, I can exile a Spellseeker and that's just good because it just shuts the deck down and stuff like that. That to me is like kind of an approach that is looking for a problem to solve and doesn't actually do it very well and just kind of leads to some bad deck building principles. Whereas what you did, what Gustav did, what countless players have done across time, you see it happen at the Pro Tour level a lot. Um, You have players finding the problem solving it in a really elegant and neat way and that's what sticks out in everybody's mind They're like holy cow this player is great they just they broke it they broke it that's very much i think how it happens yeah and i definitely agree that some people take the wrong approach to things so for instance um like about a year and a half ago when adnos was really getting popular and like grixis was becoming the new core over Soltai or whenever that happened my my time frame's a little bit messed up because of the pandemic you know we kind of just lost a couple years there but Regardless, when Adnos was starting to really show itself more up in the meta, some people were like, oh, here's my answer. I'm just going to do win conless stacks or like I'm going to jam like 20 million rule of laws. And sure, like that can slow some of these decks down. But at the end of the day, going fast just gives you more options. Like it didn't really beat the Adnos decks unless it was a triple stacks pot and one Adnos player. It's just being able to threaten the win turn two just gives you th- those options. But the deck can still do plenty of stuff past turn two, turn three, especially if you have Tim or Krom in the command zone. So I think... But just need to be a little bit more open-minded and really look at, like, what is the issue at hand instead of just trying to be like, okay, like, Turbo's good, so I'm just going to play 50 million stacks pieces and then it can't win, right? And it's like, that's not how this plays out. Exactly. I think I think a big, I think the best and most elegant way I can put that is you need to base your conclusions on experiences instead of theory. And to kind of highlight that, I actually, I came up with a kind of a process. After a while, like, it becomes very mechanical preparing for tournaments. Once you kind of get in a rhythm and you understand something that works, and this is a, this is a process that works for me, but I want to highlight it so that other people kind of know how I work. And maybe, you know, you can give it a try for yourself. Maybe you can improve on the design or whatever, but this is like, this is how I prepare for tournaments. This is like when somebody says, hey, Drake, will you come play this team event for me? Here's a format you've never played before. Prepare for this tournament and let's go win it. Let's go win a trophy. And I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. Let's go do it. This is the process I, I, I follow in order to prepare for this tournament. I did it for the SG Con Indy because I had played basically zero Pioneer prior to that event. And I'm doing it right now for CDH. So it is a, I mean, how many steps is this? What is it? Step, there's a five step process. And I think they're overall pr- fairly simple. And I think it's going to sound kind of obvious, but I, I think there's like enough structure to it to make it worth talking about. Step one. Information gathering. It is most important to me to start before you touch any magic cards, before you play any games at all, start by gathering information from people that spend a lot of time that have already done the work for you, spending a lot of time playing decks. So the most valuable resource when you're preparing for any high level event and you need to get started content. There's a ton of incredibly talented magic players, especially content creators out there that do a ton of work all day, just testing decks, playing decks, doing all this stuff. And it is literally most of the time free for you to use, or it's very cheap on Patreon. I've, I'm not above paying for a Patreon for somebody that I trust that has knowledge I seek. Like I'm, I'm not, that is extremely valuable to me because it is a ton of legwork I don't have to do. It subsidizes so much of my time. 
Like if I was trying to learn TES, I'd definitely subscribe to that Patreon tier from Brian Cook, even if it was just for a month, and be like, all right, walk me through this. Let's play some games together. <laughs> exactly. The place I'm going to start is never going to be picking up a pile of test cards and trying to figure it out on my own. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to start by consuming Brian's content. I'm going to start by watching his YouTube videos, all this stuff. You know, if I if I want to play Chrom Armix, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to find any and all games you've played with it and watch those. I'm going to read your primer. I'm going to look at your deck list. I'm going to message you. Like, it's, it's very much a... Collect as much information about where whatever starting point you want. Usually the best place to start for me is whatever people say is the best deck. So in Pioneer at the time, it was like Winota and Phoenix. Right now, people spout off that Blue Farm is kind of the best deck. You know, whatever has the best card advantage, all this stuff. So that's where I've started. That's where I'm at now. I started at Blue Farm because that's what people said is the best deck. So I did a bunch of information gathering on it, looked at a ton of different lists, talked to a bunch of different people I trust about the deck, and then, you know, began to form hypotheses. But... It is extremely important that any information that you get, especially if it comes without evidence, things like just Discord conversations, for instance, you have to make sure it's a reliable source. Like you need to be confident. Like I know you, I know how you play. I've been around you long enough. I would trust information coming from you. If some random person gets shown to me, someone's like, oh yeah, this is the whatever. This is the Bergy expert. They know Bergy better than anybody. And I'll be like, okay, I'm still going to approach it with a grain of salt because if they're just going to tell me things, it's hard to take it face value without having games that I can watch and form my own conclusions. So the most valuable content for me always is going to be what happens in games and matches. And that was a big thing I was excited about putting out with Bryant's video that he just did with us is like, here's a ton of gameplay from multiple Blue Farm players. There's a Rog Silas Turbo player in there. There's some Chrome Armix going on with your deck. Like it's really valuable to me to be able to watch games and see how things play out, see what cards matter, see what, you know, what happened and form my own opinions based on that and not necessarily have to rely as much on taking people's word at face value. And I'm, while well, I'm someone who doesn't really compete in tournaments, I do feel like I'm a good resource for that. And I think it's funny, like let people who have already done the legwork and put in all the reps and I think it's funny just because, like, you and a lot of other people, like, such as Ashani and such, like, whenever there's a tournament coming up, everyone sends me their deck list or is asking me, like, what what do you think we should do? Like, what, how should we prepare? And, and you know, glad that the callous hours I put into playing this, this stupid format has uh, been able to be beneficial for people who compete in events. Look, Mikey, I didn't I didn't pick a co-host for this podcast at random, you know. <laughs> this, this, this is, you are somebody that I trust to get on a mic and say intelligent things to an audience and curb a lot of my stupid opinions that come out of my mouth. I like running Smothering Tide. Hey, hey, wait a minute. Actually, I did cut Smothering Tide, so put some respect on my name. I still think it's fine, but uh, <laughs> when I cut uh, I, when I cut a land, I, I think it's actually getting really hard to cast, so... Uh, we'll see. It might end up back in the deck. I'm just trying the deck without it. You know, just just as a theory. Which brings us to the next the next step here. Step two. At first, you information gather. Next, you begin to form hypotheses from what you've consumed. So before, once again, this is still before you touch any magic cards. You need to consume the content and then start to think critically about the format. You need to be watching these events or watching these games, you need to be watching these matches, you need to be consuming this content actively. Think about what's going on. Be aware of how everyone's playing, how they're posturing. Form opinions on do you think the plays were good or not. Uh, form opinions on do you think the players were good or not. What cards performed well? What cards did you think were bad? You know, did the player look like they should win? You know, did they have all the resources to win and chuck it? Or did it look like, you know, their deck just kind of spun their wheels and died? Why? Why not? 
be extremely critical of everything going on. Now, you don't have to voice it. You don't have to tell these players that, oh, I thought that was bad. Blah, 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 blah. Like, you need to inform it for yourself. Take notes in your in your head or even on pen and paper and just start to figure out what's going on. Deduce the logic behind plays that are made, behind cards that are included. What are the plans these players are coming up with? You know, are they making decisions at random? Or is there a plan that these players are playing towards? Because it's usually the latter. Having a plan is the biggest distinguisher between good and bad players. There was a huge Channel Fireball article where they polled all of the like, top pros and were like, what's the biggest difference between players that play at a high level and players that you know are you know whatever, still at FNM level and all that kind of stuff. And every single one of them basically said, players that play at the highest level form a cohesive plan and every decision follows that plan. It's not just, here's a pile of good cards, I'm just going to cast my spells. It's, oh... I am trying to navigate the game to this particular game state. And so I'm going to use my resources and, you know, mulligan and literally do every, every game action is going to play towards that plan. Figure out what those plans are. That is how you're going to be able to form hypotheses that are functional, that are actionable, and that are things that you can actually test. You can be like, okay, you know, the plan for Blue Farm is to be able to go off you know, as like a Turbonaz deck. And then if you fail, you have Timna and Krom to rebuild. That is a plan. That is like a deck building philosophy for this Blue Farm deck. Now, not all Blue Farm decks are built like that, but, you know, that was like the original idea as far as you've told me. Is that correct? Then win early. And then if you get stopped, you have two fantastic draw engines to help you rebuild. Or if it's a slower game, because say someone drops like, I don't know, Thalia. Cool. Get your Timna, get your Krom out, draw cards, you'll hit your out. Perfect. See, that's that's a plan. Like, that's more than just, oh, it's just Timna and Krom plus a pile of the best cards in Sands Green. Like, there's a real cohesive plan and a deck-building philosophy that goes into this deck that leads to things like, you know, Dranith Magistrate is a card that I recently cut because it doesn't play that plan well. That card does not contribute to that exact plan you just listened to me. So it should not be in the deck. That is... Exactly what I'm talking about. Despite Dranth Magistrate being an undeniably powerful card in the CDH format, I think if you are building your blue farm with that particular plan in mind, you should not have Dranth Magistrate. And so these are the kinds of things I'm talking about. You have to be able to form hypotheses and basically create these lists of truths that you think may or may not actually be true about the format, but you want to find out. And this is where you finally, in step three get to test your hypotheses and pick up magic cards. This is when you should be picking up magic cards. Too many players start by just mindlessly playing games. Never, 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 never do that. If you are testing for a tournament, you should never just be really mindlessly jamming. Have something, be actively playing, have something you're figuring out. Is this card good enough in this situation? Oh, you know, is this, you know, am I overvaluing this card? Why am I losing here? Like, it's not, I'm not just quote unquote getting unlucky. You're not just getting unlucky. What, why, what is happening? You know, what is happening in these games that is causing you to be behind? Or if you're just winning over and over again, why? Why is that? What's contributing to that? There are so many things you can learn by playing just a single game of Magic, much less a match, much less a, a league on Magic Online or, you know, a, an entire day of pods. But so many players just sit there and play passively and just, you know, whatever. They just play their cards. They don't, they don't form hypotheses and then use games to test them. Yeah, I agree with this, and the advice that I usually give people, like, if they're testing a new card, or this is something that I do all the time when I'm testing, like, a new card or two, and I know this heuristic isn't 
isn't relevant for everything because there's cards like cantrips and such but in general if you're playing a black deck you're playing a deck that has a density of tutors how often are you searching for that card that you just added exactly you added maybe you added a marks of the swirling mist because you thought that you were going to keep losing to creatures and you were going to keep losing to winota but you ended up never needing to tutor it and it was never relevant psychriff did the job or dress down did the job just as well things like that so like i said i know this doesn't apply to everything because you know for instance ragavan Esper Sentinel. Those are cards that I don't really think you will actively tutor for all the time. Like sometimes turn one you may. They're just really good cards. But when you're trying to test like new tech or something like that, if it's something that you're never looking for in your game, or you're never in a position where it's like, dang, I wish I drew this one card, probably means that it's not good enough. Like this is something I talked to Drake when I was testing some Timna Thrasio stuff. I was trying to do some intuition piles with Savine's Wreck. Um, and this was also before Swiffer Configuration was out. I think the intuition has gotten a lot better since that card was printed. Like, I did have an intuition pile, but it used, like, seven mana. And after playing the deck a lot, not a single game was I tutoring for intuition just because the pile was so mana-intensive, I'd much rather just get my Nas or try to assemble the Scepter combo. And it's, like, things like that that you really need to think about. Don't just put cards in and be like, oh, it's cool because it's good in this niche situation. If that niche situation never shows up or you're never actively looking for it, probably cut it. We have abundance of ways to find the cards that you need at the right time. Have a lot of draw engines, and if it's something that you're upset with seeing or you're just never actively looking for, you don't need 100 games to figure that out. I can come to these conclusions after just playing five games. It's just not relevant. And obviously, pod composition has something to do with this, but like, it's going back to what Drake was saying with just over-testing. You don't need to play 100 games on a deck, I don't care what deck it is, to determine if the deck is good, if you're good at the deck. You can get a feel for it just after a few pods. Exactly. People that come to me and quote how many games they've played, I I, I don't care. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't care how long you've been playing the deck. I don't care how many reps you have for the deck. What did you learn? I care about what do you know about the core strategy? What is your goal? You know, if it changes, when does it change? How, what is the threshold for the point at which it's time to pivot plans with the deck? I care about this kind of stuff. And this is this is how you talk about magic at a high level. I don't care about your spreadsheet statistics. I don't care about your win rate in your pod or in or even in a single tournament i i care about gameplay experiences i care about you know what did this card do in this in this situation that made you think oh yes this is worth including or what problem is this card solving that your deck was encountering and that was something you just brought up and you did a great job discussing and yeah it's it very much comes down to a mentality when it comes to playing games. Playing games itself is not good enough. You have to be actively engaged and thinking about a lot more than just the cards that are in your hand and even the cards that other your opponents are playing. Think about the game context. Have a little bit of game sense about what is going on and you know what impact cards are having. This a big discussion recently is wheels. Wheels and blue farm. And I think the big divide between the people I talk to about Wheels and Blue Farm and how they've been for, for me, and I think for you too, you play Wheels and Grong Armix, is the context of the game in which the wheel is powerful. A lot of people envision games where you cast a wheel and then you don't get a turn. And that just has not been the reality for me a lot of the time. They, they solve very specific problems. They have these uh, you know fairly relevant scenarios where they come up and they're the best card in your deck. I have tutored up Wheels multiple times and... You know, I think they are, you know, obviously valuable and clues. They're still in my blue farm deck, but this is a good example of where is this divide? Where is this argument coming from? And how do you actually take a side and try to determine what is quote unquote correct without being able to have anywhere near the data you need? And a lot of it comes from being able to talk about 
these games, how they play out pre and post wheel, and what problems the wheels themselves are solving. I agree with that 100% because this is something that Zane and I talk a lot about too. Like a lot of people are low on wheels because as you said, some people are like, oh, I cast a wheel, then I just lose. And it's like, well, there's correct ways and incorrect ways to use a wheel. Like maybe if you're tapping out for your wheel, you know, don't give everyone else at the table a fresh seven and then see what happens. Make sure you have like open mana. And then another thing, which I think I've really drilled into you is they just make your mulligan smoother because you're able to mulligan lower. And now you have a density of things that just get you out of this bad situation. You have Remora now. You have Esper Sentinel, Ledger Shredder, Ristic Study. And then one of your three wheels. I don't like Wheel of Misfortune. If you like that card, that's fine. I'm just not a big fan of conditional wheels. But like Twister, Windfall, Wheel of Fortune. This gives you more outs when you're mulliganing to four, five, like five cards or less. Now you have more ways to just get back in the game. And there's also times where you just have an abundance of mana, nothing to do with it. Refill with the wheel, or maybe there's a big counter war, your wind just got stopped, tutor the wheel to the top, and now you're ready to go your next turn. But it's definitely one of those things you can't just blindly cast it, you do have to put some thought into it, but I do think that's a good example where people are just like, this wheel's bad, I lost because I cast a wheel of fortune, then I died to the next person in turn order, and it's like, well, maybe you shouldn't have cast it in that situation. Yeah, did you think about why that happened instead of, it's not the wheel's fault, like, maybe you could have held it. Like, you know, think about, think about a game context where you make a different decision. If, if you if you did something and died, okay, is there any way you could have held it and maybe not died? Could you have cast it earlier and it been more effective? There's so much more that goes on, but people just tilt off because they did this and died. And they're just like, okay, got to get it out of my deck. And they refuse to think about things in this like more, I, I don't want to say objective, but at least a little bit more critical uh, context. And uh, honestly, truthfully, wheels are a great example, but the biggest infraction for not thinking about what problems do cards solve when it comes to CDH is when people start talking about layering. People talk about layering combos. People talk about playing a bunch of extra Bs for only a single A when it comes to A plus B combos. Like when you are bringing all these deck building things to the table and you're including these cards because they quote unquote make sense in the deck, but they don't actually solve any problems. They just kind of add more stuff to your deck that may or may not actually work together with the rest of your cards in your deck. A lot of times you're just making your deck worse. You don't need 100,000 combos that all layer. You you do need a functional deck with powerful cards. And then if it has a unique thing going on, that's fine. You can lean into that a little bit. But a lot of times I see people really overcommit to, you know, A plus B combos or layering a bunch of stuff together. And it's just, you just don't need to do that. And I think that is a big uh, kind of deck list first approach to a deck building where you're just like, okay, uh, this is what I think the deck should have in order to work. And you don't really think about, okay, well, what is where what is gameplay experience going to look like with the deck in this kind of configuration? Like, Is your deck actually going to function? Are you going to have to mulligan to Oblivion, but you don't have wheels to, or you know, whatever, these Mystic Gamora's Ristic Studies and all these things you can power out to get you back in it? Th- these are the kinds of things you need to be thinking about. And I think a lot of times players don't. Yeah, no, I, I agree yeah. with that 100%. <laughs> yeah. Not to berate that too much, but I think I think that is one of the biggest things that people mess up. So I did kind of want to harp on it a little bit. That brings us to step four. We're on four of five. And this is simply just drawing conclusions. You you mentioned it. People habitually overtest. You do not need thousands of games to deduce something with a degree of confidence. You don't. A lot of times, you know, you can play a, a single game and see how something plays out and be like, okay, yeah, I don't think this is going to solve the problem because you can take that game experience and tweak it a little bit and imagine that's okay, well, what if it was a little earlier? What if it was a little later? Like, you can imagine some scenarios in which whatever you're testing, you know, has a little bit of wiggle to it 
And does that actually break it open for being better or worse or whatever? If it was a turn fast or whatever. I, I bring this up when I talk about SCG a lot. People talk about how many leagues they play and how much testing they did. It's like, when I was playing SCGs, a lot of times I would play less than five leagues a week. And I almost never played... I don't think I ever played a league with the same exact 75 twice. And I very rarely ever played with even the same deck. Five matches was actually usually... Even against random stuff was usually enough for me to find out whatever, you know, particular thing I was looking to find out about a deck. And everything else was subsidized by content. Podcasts, streams, you know, videos, just talking with people on the internet. Like, all of that is where I got the majority of the valuable information and the valuable knowledge I needed to play a tournament. And then, you know, I just kind of filled up some holes in uh, some questions I had with... A few leaks. You don't need thousands and thousands of matches. You absolutely do not. And as a result, like I said, hard data, not very useful because it's just, you're just wasting your time. You're just kind of burning yourself out realistically and forming bad habits of just trying, like you get hopeless in matchups that are unfavorable and you start getting defeatist. You start assuming you're going to win matchups that are favorable and, you know, then you start getting arrogant and it just builds up a lot of really bad habits to just like, I think, sit there and mindlessly test a ton if you can't stay objective, which I definitely can't. I mean, Magic's an emotional game. I can't just play thousands of matches without just like starting to get into this like pattern of assuming I'm going to win favorable matchups, assuming I'm going to lose unfavorable matchups and just never actually learning anything. And so, yeah, I mean, everything in this process as a result is feeling based, which is why a lot of times these kinds of discussions get thrown out the window when it comes to like talking in like a discord or whatever. If I, if I tell somebody in discord that like your data is useless, you should be playing things and like making conclusions based on your experiences and your feelings. They're going to laugh me out the room, but that's like, that's the reality because it doesn't matter how much data you've really put together unless it's just like a huge number. So like quoting data at me, even though it is actual data and is quote unquote better than nothing, it actually is worse than nothing in my opinion, because you're just drawing bad conclusions. Whereas if you are playing games actively and you are a savvy magic player that has a good fundamentals underneath them, then you know what to look for. You can see patterns even based on only one or two games and see how things are going to work, quote unquote, most of the time with a degree of confidence that even if you're wrong, you're not going to be that far off because you also kind of have some lived experiences to work off of. And it is just so much more valuable to me. And when talking with other, you know, very, very skilled magic players, they kind of uh, agree with that sentiment so you know despite it sounding really goofy because it does it sounds completely incorrect oh yeah ignore all the data uh only trust your feelings what is this luke skywalker like no like it's not (laughs) but unfortunately if you can't trust yourself you can't trust anybody so you're gonna have to you're gonna have to start drawing some conclusions of your own uh and trusting your your instinct when it comes to playing magic otherwise you're never gonna reach the highest level that you can if you cannot trust yourself to play a deck and be like, I think this match was bad because these cards didn't line up in the way that they seem like they should. Yeah, and just to piggyback off that a little bit, something that I think is just hilarious is when I'm in random deck discords. It's part of the reason why I left them, and they're like, this deck mulligans a turn two, turn three win every time. And I'm like, no, I don't care if, <laughs> if when you gold... Yeah, one, I don't believe you. Two, you goldfishing is not indicative of how a game plays out by any means. Like I do think goldfishing is a useful resource, but I mostly look at goldfishing to check my mana base and things like mm-hmm. that to be like, okay, like here's a hand, like can I actually cast these spells? And then yes. I like using it to tweak that and just to see like if the deck basically functions on a basic level. But I'm not drawing any meaningful conclusions from goldfishing, because if that if that's how we drew conclusions, 
I'd say Cody's just tier zero. That deck will win turn two basically every time. Like, it yep. does not need much yeah. to go off, and it will always do its thing. But that's not how games play out. You play Cody, you're not going to win turn two every time. You'll get those turn two wins, absolutely, because there's times where, you, you know, times the turn two Nas kills you. It doesn't happen every game, but it's there. Like, if you're just basing this off of, like, goldfishing in a vacuum, like, I have goldfished this deck thousands of times, and it's win rate is, like, two on turn two 80% of the times. Like, I, I just don't care. Like, that is just not useful information in the slightest. Exactly. No, you, I very much agree. In fact, I usually am like, okay, you're just over-exaggerating to make yourself sound smart and overblow the potency of this deck. And now I'm like actively disinterested in engaging with you further. Like, I'm sorry, but that's just reality. Like when it comes to information gathering, if you come at me with these extreme, just overblown opinions, I am incredibly unlikely to take you seriously for any length of time because it's just like, that's not reality. Like if that was true, everyone would be playing this deck and it'd be the tier zero thing and it would just be so broken. It's not like it's not. So some part of what you're saying is false or you just gave me some of the most valuable information you have access to for free. And I, I don't think it's the latter. So, you know, I would check the way you talk about magic because it, it, it does leave an impression in people's mouths. If you come at things with these extremely aggressive, you know, opinions that aren't based in even really even experiences, you're just like, oh, yeah, I just went all the time. It's like, OK, well, I mean, who are you playing against? Because that's just that sounds like. Unless you're just secretly the best player ever, you're just John Finkel in disguise that has broken everything or whatever. Like, I I just don't think this is true. Like, this is just not real. So, yeah, you do kind of need to to watch watch the extremes. Magic players known for their hyper hyperbole, not very useful when it comes to trying to deduce uh, real, tangible, actionable information out of uh, gameplay experiences. And last but not least, step five of my process is repeat. You, you can't, you don't just do this once you do this constantly. The process is iterative. I, I mean, I use that word a lot. It's, I, I, I hate buzzwords. I really do. I hate buzzwords so much. I describe things in the most basic terms possible. My professional career field in computer science is full of buzzwords. It drives me bananas. But in this case, I think, you know, iterating on a deck is the most succinct way to describe what the process actually looks like, because it is very much just multiple iterations of this process where it's like, okay, I gathered information. I figured out, hey, like, what if I played this deck but played this card to solve this matchup because it seems like it has a bad matchup here. Test it. Oh, that card wasn't good enough. So my conclusion was that card's not good enough. Go back to the drawing board. And you just go through iteration, iteration, iteration. And, you know, I, I'll do that. I'll take a deck, try to learn it, build it different ways, try learning things about different matchups, adjust the sideboard plans, try different things. That, you know, of course, you sometimes you have sideboard guides when it comes to 60-card formats, and I'll try following those. If that doesn't work, I'll make adjustments. And... You just repeat it over and over and over and over until either you run out of time or you break the format. You solve it. Obviously, it's usually the former. You just run out of time. But in general, you know, you can get close, but there's always something new to be learned. Even if you find the deck you should be playing, you know, you can try to perfect the 13th through 15th sideboard cards. You probably won't get them right. But at the same time, if it's wrong, it's not by much. Like when I won Indie, I had play, I played one Leyline of Sanctity on my sideboard because I wanted a card for burn. Didn't want to play green for Weather the Storm. And I was like, I don't know. I'm just going to play this ley line and hope to get lucky. Like, the 15 cyber card just doesn't matter that much. So I literally just slapped this ley line in there. It was the worst thing ever. It just didn't matter at all. So uh, I I think this process, I, I, I don't know. I don't want to sound like this is all original. I mean, I think this is extremely indicative of just, like, the base scientific method you learn about in, like, eighth grade or whatever. But it is a lot more, um, I think, compact and specific to magic formats uh, when delivered in this way 
but it is tried and true. This is something that I think a lot of people do. And uh, I think it works for other scenarios too. Like it works for 60 card formats. It works for CDH. And this is something I would do if I wanted to get good at whatever, like FPS. If I want to get good at Overwatch, I would do the same thing. I would start by just information gathering a ton. All right. Uh, what is the meta games? Like what, what are the compositions people are playing? Why? You know, what should I be doing? What do I, what do I think I'm even good at? What role should I be playing? Like there's so much to learn. The information gathering point would be immense. And that's true. The more that you don't know, the longer you spend on the information gathering point and the less time you should be spending just jamming games. You need to figure out what's going on at all before you even start picking up a mouse to play like an FPS or whatever, in my opinion. I'm sure there's some adjustments that happen. I'm no, whatever, CSGO Pro, Overwatch Pro, but I think this generic structure does port well, but in general is extremely effective in the Magic space, in the Magic community, because of how much content is out there and how much you can leverage work that other people have already done for you. No, I agree. And this process is basically what I did when I played competitive Yu-Gi-Oh! back in high school, as well as when I was doing competitive League of Legends, especially the information gathering. Like when a new champion comes out, it's like, oh, I don't really like I, I can read the abilities and things. But like, let me go see what pro's playing it. What pro has guides on it? What do those builds look like? Like, how are they doing this? Things like that. And I definitely think it's a process that I think CDH players could really adopt. Because I feel like, as you said, a lot of it's on emotions. It's like, I've been playing this commander for 10 years and I think it's great. And it's like, okay. Yeah, if you're going to a tournament to win, I like I, I that's fine. Like I get it, this format's meant to be more casual. But, but if I'm trying to talk about what I'm playing at a tournament or tuning list for a tournament, I'm not gonna hold back and I'm gonna let you know like your commander's just not great. And I think this yeah. is part of the reason why Brian and I have gotten along so well, because we both are very much as like against against pet cards. It's like we're playing this game because we wanna win, we enjoy winning, and we just don't have time for that cute stuff. And if that's something you like, like go for it. Like I like I said, I understand commander's meant to be more casual, but a lot of these discussions, I feel like, just go out the door when you're playing in a tournament. And if you genuinely want to win, like, just be honest. Just be like, I like playing this deck. I don't think it's the best, but this is what I want to play. And that's fine. Totally understandable. No qualms there. But don't show me your cute deck and be like, I'm going to win the tournament with this. And then I will just be like, sure. And then I will stop talking to you because I will go theory craft with people who are actually trying to win. Exactly. People get these chips on their shoulders because, like like I said, they, they identify with these decks. Like, I play Berkey and Essica and all those decks because I like them. I think they can compete at a high level, but in general, aren't the absolute best thing to be playing. Uh, and there's a lot of cards in there. It's like, I don't know, I'm just playing these cards because I like them. And I think this is kind of like a unique space. But like, those aren't good reasons to play a, a deck in a tournament. And a big reason why I like tournaments so much is the same reason I like CDH so much. Because, you know, in CDH, you get to dodge a lot of the, oh, my deck's a seven conversations where a seven means anything across the entire spectrum. Um you're just like, okay, like we're all showing up, trying our hardest to win. If somebody wins and it's miserable, well, then sounds like you should have been playing a better deck. Stop them from winning. You know, it's like you can't get mad at somebody for playing a quote unquote miserable strategy when you're playing at the highest level. Like if you have a problem with that, kill them, kill the table. Like you should solve the problem of I don't like playing as this strategy by beating it, not by complaining about it or, you know, whatever rule zeroing it out or whatever. I like that approach a lot. I like playing stuff at the highest level. I like playing with powerful cards. I mean, whatever, playing with powers motto, powerful cards, powerful formats. That's that's what I'm about. Like, I, I very much like that kind of stuff. I want to be playing stuff at the highest level. I like playing with busted stuff. And when it comes to tournaments, I want to be playing with the stuff that I know can win the most. You know, it kind of strips, like you said, that casual out of the competitive EDH because competitive EDH has kind of gotten warped a little bit from, all right, like, let's try to break this which is like, we talked about Bryant last week. That was his entire point. He just wanted to break it open. 
So that was kind of obviously like the original idea. And it has kind of been warped over time. to it's like, oh, just take a commander and build it as competitive as you can. And it's like, well, that's that's not true. A lot of times you're going to be end up playing inferior commanders. A lot of times you're going to be playing inferior cards. And if your reason for playing a card is I think it's fun or, you know, I just like it or it's my pet card or I don't know, it, it was good for me in 2010 or what. You know, there's a lot of bad reasons to be playing any given card. I think... If your answer when it comes to why am I playing a card doesn't involve solving a problem for your deck, then you're not playing. You're not playing CDH at the highest level. Definitely agree with all that. So, either way, those five steps are the steps I follow to solve a format. I start by information gathering, form some hypotheses, test the hypotheses, draw some conclusions, repeat the whole thing. And these have, I try to provide some very, very specific examples to show you what that looks like in magic space using actual real examples from me playing uh previously and i think that if you find yourself just mindlessly playing games in order to test like if your idea of testing is just everybody in your play group shows up with whatever deck they like the most and you just play games all day and that's it that's fine Th that's not testing there's no conversations happening about you know what could be done to improve the decks in like a more open metagame. People aren't switching off decks and playing things that maybe are outside their comfort zone in order to give a more varied um, metagame and more varied play experience. People aren't, you know, making adjustments. I think, I think if you're not swapping cards out after whatever, three or four games, because something's underperforming, something's, you know, you want to try a different card to solve a problem or something. You're, you're probably not playing actively enough. You're not thinking enough about, you know, what the actual problems are, why you're losing games or why you're winning games. And if you're just sitting around, you play all day and you're like, wow, I think that was a really good session and nothing changed. I think all you did was have a great time playing with your friends, which is awesome. I love that for you, but you can't pretend it's testing for a tournament because it's, it's not, you should be, you should be there to learn. You should be there to discover how to build your deck better. It's a mentality thing. And then having those post-game discussions where it's like, why did you make this play? Like that seemed questionable. Like what was your hand? Like what was your starting hand? Like would you have like is it, did you think like this was keepable? It's like that. Like these are discussions that me, Drake, Brian, and some of the other legacy people I've been playing with recently are having. And I, I honestly think like two weeks ago when we first started playing versus where, where we're at now, it's like a whole different ballgame. Like I agree. people have gotten a lot better. Brian, you might not want to admit it, but I think he. Where, where he was two weeks ago is not where he was now, and he's definitely improved sure. a lot. And it's really picked up a lot of the play patterns with CEDH, and now it's to the point where, like, I can't even beat him. And it's a little, <laughs> and I can't beat Drake anymore now either, which is also a little frustrating because I definitely have helped usher Drake into the format. But it's just like, yeah, like they just have both him and Brian are perfect examples of having this competitive mindset. We're here to play, we're here to win. And every game, they're taking away something else from it. They keep adding in a card, taking out a card, even if the card was in their list for one game. It's just like, yeah, like, this, this didn't do what I want to do. Um, next. Things like that. And it's really just, it, it's improved my my play skill. It's really improved my deck building. It's just been a really fun process to see and um, just like getting more involved with them and having this more competitive mindset versus just jamming games all day in Discord. Yeah, it's, it is a different mindset. And like, you know, I, I think a lot of people are like, a lot of people in our wider circle than like the people that are, you know, in maybe our little bit more focused testing group for specifically like things like Hunt City um, are kind of like, oh, snap, you know, there's all this winning coming out of nowhere and all this stuff. And it's like, well, 
you know, it, it, it's a shift in mindset. I, you know, I went from playing these decks that I enjoyed, things like whatever, Bergieska and all this stuff that can compete or whatever, but isn't nearly the best deck, to trying to find the best deck or at least tune a deck that already exists that is at least, you know, very, very powerful, something like Blue Farm, and take it to the extreme. And, you know, having these post-game conversations, playing these active things, even in-game being like, you know, I don't think this card's good enough or whatever. We're having these conversations daily. What do we think of this card? Do we miss on this card? Oh, should we... Should we be trying this card? Like, all these conversations that we're having about the problems that are happening in our pods and the, the iterating that we're doing on these decks and counteracting some of this regressive deck building I think we've seen where people are so addicted to innovation that they will build a deck. And this happens in 60-card formats all the time, where they will build a deck badly just to try out new cards or they think they're solving a problem, but, like, the reality is the deck was still good enough to carry them even with the bad changes, so they think the bad changes are still good. Uh, this happened This happened with, I mean, Titan Shift. I built the deck, whatever, like five years, like a, a build five years earlier had a big result with it in 60-card formats. The Storm list I played was a list from way, way earlier that I played, like, whatever, three or four years prior. And I, I think a lot of times people, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And a lot of people try to just fix it because they want to make it better. And that's, that's good. You should have that iterative mindset. But it can oftentimes lead to this regressive deck building where you're just trying to make changes to solve problems that aren't actually worth solving. You just kind of want to to improve it. You want to improve on the design and don't know how without trying to solve these really minuscule problems that aren't actually worth solving. That's a podcast in its own, I think. But uh, I think it is possible to go too far in the other direction. But a big reason why Bryant, you know, you, me, all these, like our pods are improving and not just skill level, but actual deck building because of these conversations we're having because the way we're testing we're not just mindlessly jamming games all day and just okay that was fun and moving along with our lives we're you know pulling from those experiences and using them to build on our our next list and our next pod and make some conclusions and i think it's been really productive yeah definitely um with all that and that really just echoes like what i mentioned with just game more games in with brian and like you and other legacy people who are really just have such a focus on winning versus trying to be the next innovative CDH brewer, which I think a lot of people kind of fall into that trap and try to do things for the sake that they're different, not because they're good. For sure. I mean, the emphasis in the CDH community, especially previously when there's, you know, an absence of a, a critical mass of tournaments is certainly on content creation. So spicy lists and stuff are going to be more uh, prominent, more appealed, more shared in the community than the same boring, whatever, blue farm list, because people just don't, they don't like the tuning process as much as, you know, whatever people like me and maybe even Bryant do where we come from this background where that's all we do is we just take a list and we're like, okay, well, let's, let's build this better. And people, people don't care. They want a whole new list with whole new strategies and whole new win conditions and stuff. And uh, that's what they want to see. That's what content creation is going to provide. And I think the, the incentives are very different in the CDH community as it's existed prior. And if tournaments begin to ramp up, I think we may see a, a little bit of a, a balancing, not, not necessarily a shift completely in the other direction, but more of a, more of a balance for sure. And that's something that I am interested in kind of leading the charge on. And I think that that is a big core concept of what left a bad taste in a lot of players' mouths with respect to how I talk about things and how I've referred to things, even on this podcast, in discords and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I deeply apologize if you take offense to that kind of thing, but it, it is a process that for me is tried and true. And, these are my realities. I, if you don't know, you know, if you don't like what I have to say, like I hate to be this guy, but you can just not interact with me. You can block me on Twitter. You can block me on Discord and all this stuff, and you never have to see my stuff anymore. But um, I am very much somebody that 
I'm open-minded to good faith discussion, but in general, I'm going to speak on my experiences because that's all I got to work with, you know? For sure. Well, I appreciate you sitting through this uh, session of me talking about kind of some experiences and stuff and trying to not necessarily clear the air, but maybe uh, articulate the process I follow. Maybe, you know, maybe somebody will listen to this and be like, hey, maybe I should be talking to my playgroup about changing the way we approach our testing. And honestly, I think that would be huge for for me and the purpose of this podcast is you know being able to get this out and help people improve on play testing i was writing an article right before uh i stopped writing articles altogether um on better play testing that covered a lot of these topics in really intimate detail um and you know i never got whatever released or anything like that i'm glad to be able to touch on this topic now where i think people have you know they can put more structure into their play testing they can make very concrete discrete hypotheses is like i want to find out if this is good enough like you can make these assertions it's like i want to find this out and then solve it and that feels really good it's like a to-do list so i I think it's worth worth trying for people that have never done it before especially if you're looking to play your first few tournaments in any format uh coming up and i appreciate you listening to me if you want to find mikey hollahan and you want to talk to him and be like mikey i (laughs) hate you for bringing all these legacy players into the CDH community. You are the actual worst. You shouldn't be making tournaments. You are everything wrong with CDH. Mikey, where could they, where could they do that? Uh, they can find me at the Miscast Twitter at MiscastMTG. Uh, my personal Twitter, which is at Mikey Hollihan, or as always, you can hit up my secretary, Hal. Uh, he's been doing a much better job recently. He helps set up some uh, meetings with people in Philly. They hit him <laughs> up now when they want to see me, and I think it's really funny. So yeah, keep giving him work. It's, it's a great process and love it. Um, uh, just one last thing I want to end on real quick, too. With all the tournaments coming up, one rule that I think a lot of people forget that is Comp REL is you can't use dice as counters. So just a little quick plug for Brian's shop, because I've been loving these tokens and they were really popular at Command Fest. If you go to the epicstorm.com, he has token packs that you can have to manage your mana, manage storm counter, manage, manage treasure tokens. It's really cheap, really nice, colorful tokens, and it helped me out a lot. And like at Command Fest, there was a term where my muscle magic josh had like 20 storm and it was a lot nicer instead of taking out a dice just constantly dropping a storm counter on the table and helping him track mana so i think they're really useful and just something to look into because you won't be able to use dice at all these events coming up so i think it'd be nice just to have that and have it in your deck box it's a really nice product that i wanted to plug real quick no yeah no you're right i actually just bought some today so i can't even act like i like i'm not also invested in that as well obviously i'm looking to support brian he's my friend but he also put out a quality product so definitely gonna happy to plug that and support that and uh, appreciate all the work he does to make playing storm decks a lot more manageable. We have Bryant's awesome. You can check him out. Epicstorm.com. If you want some of your own tokens, check him out. You're welcome, Bryant. That's a free plug for you. And if you're looking to find me, if you're looking to be like, wow, this Drake guy is actually the worst. I can't believe I sat here and listened to him monologue and he's the rudest, just worst. Once again, actually just the worst thing about CDH that could possibly exist. You can block me, find me on Twitter at viral underscore Drake. You can find me on Moxfield at viral Drake. There's no underscore in that one. And uh, of course you can reach me at miscast MTG. Um, if you want to reach both Mikey and I, we both have access to that Twitter. We post on that Twitter. So, you know, it's a crapshoot who you're interacting with, but you can reach us both at the Miscast Twitter. And I appreciate, appreciate you all for listening. We'll catch y'all next week.